Thanks for sticking around this evening. You know, it's a, it's a little late in the evening, but we're just getting started, so here we are. I have two strains running through my mind this evening, and I hope that they come together in some way. And I think I'd like to to entitle the even, this evening's uh, Stray Thoughts, um, Pacifying the Bully. Uh, my wife was reporting to me some study that she just read about, maybe many of you read about it, that uh, 86% of people report that as children... Uh, they were bullied. 86% of people surveyed were bullied. And this is a, it's an amazing thing to reflect on, the fact that, that the most vulnerable, when people are vulnerable, they tend to be, they tend to, not intentionally, of course, they tend to attract those, uh, people tend to, exploit or take advantage of or bully those who are who are are vulnerable and this has uh, this is not just something that happens in the human realm but it happens in the animal realm as too animal realm as well the most vulnerable creatures are often uh, targeted by the the stronger creatures and it's it's really easy to understand it in the animal kingdom queendom world, whatever you want to call it, because the animal world is uh, marked by the inherent insecurity of um, either eating or being eaten. And so it's just a part of, part of the nature. So there is an inherent insecurity. But I think just like bullying is slightly invisible, slightly hidden, the inherent insecurities in the human realm uh, are just as much at work. And I think in my own reflections about this that bullying is driven by an inability, and I would say that almost everything that we do that causes suffering fits in this category, but... but Bullying falls into the category of um, a reaction to the inability to deal with insecurity. Because it is, if you are born, as we often talk about here on Tuesday, the definition of birth is the leading cause of insecurity. It is the leading cause of all kinds of continually changing conditions. The conditions of, of growing, of conditions of aging, the conditions of sickness, the conditions of old age, the condition of dying, the condition of, of uh, uh, insecurity about resources, insecurity about shelter, insecurity about so many matters. It is an inherent part of human existence. Anyone who is born is subject to insecurity. Anybody you know who isn't? 
Isn't it true that this is the nature of reality? It's the nature of our existence that we are, by virtue of having been born, we are born into insecurity. We cannot make one moment last. Everything is marked by continual flux and change. And because everything is marked by continual flux and change, and I know as you hear this, you may just hear, this is Dharma 101. And because everything, though everything is marked by change, and because of that, there is not anything that we can cling to or hold to that can give us a sense of reliable or lasting satisfaction. It is a mark of our existence. There is nothing. There is no experience. There is no person. There is no body. There is not one experience that we can cling to and find a reliable refuge in. And because everything is in a state of flux, including our own mind, our own body, everything that we take ourselves to be is in a state of change. It is also possible to see if one is born, you are, you are born into a, um, what might be called an egoless process, a selfless process. We are born with, without any, um, you could say, with, uh, through no fault of our own. We were born because conditions came together. Parents came together. Cultures came together. Seeds and eggs came together. All kinds of conditions, non-personal conditions came together. Elements of earth, air, fire, and water formed in, in miraculously, unexplainably, formed together. And we, based on what would some would say, based on a, just a stream of conditioning, personal and non-personal, we were born into this uh, sense of being a person that on the surface seems very solid and individual and autonomous. But if we look more deeply, we cannot find any part of ourselves that exists independently, truly independently, apart from all things. That our whole, the whole nature of our mind and body is selfless. You cannot separate this body from earth, air, fire, water, from the elements of nature. No, we are inseparable. We are of one taste with all things and all beings. So you can see that any notion of me and mine and separateness is marked by uh, insecurity. Any attempt to find solidity in this world of change produces a feeling of, of quicksand, of loss, of, of uncertainty, of and. The more we look to the world of changing conditions for our sense of well-being, the more we fall into a trap, what's called, what the Tibetans called the defects of samsara. We, don't, we fail to see the defects that things are in, in a state of change. And in not dealing with that and not coming to terms with it, not, not opening to it, seeing it for what it is, because of the of avidya or ignorance or the lack of clear perception, we, as one Tibetan lama put it, we wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle with false hopes and dreams, and we just keep spinning our wheels. 
or we do in the modern sense what Bolozov calls, we do our best to try to keep up with the Joneses. And you've also heard me quote him frequently here on Tuesday night where he reminds us that uh, the Joneses are not very happy. And this comes from trying to find security in the world of accumulation. Another way that we try to deal with our insecurity is to adopt views and opinions, to try to belong to a certain to a certain religion, a certain party, a certain gender, a certain role, a certain whatever it is. And there is a a natural attempt, because of insecurity, to find some kind of certainty. And yet, the more we cling to our views and opinions, the more we feel that sense of um, wounded pride when somebody disagrees with us. And that wounded pride then generates aggression. And then the cycle of aggression. So we have the cycle of desire, the cycle of, of aggression all driven by the lack of clear perception that life has as part of its nature insecurity. This is the same world that the Buddha was born into, that all beings have been born into. Some, in that search for security, want to think that they can find it through the accumulation of power of influence. I think that a lot of the bullying is driven by the sense of the momentary sense of inflation that comes from feeling stronger than, better than. So it's often driven by the comparing mind. The comparing mind is another common human tendency But when it's seen for what it is, it's seen to be an absolutely empty flow of thoughts about somebody who doesn't exist. The notion of I'm above, I'm below, I'm equal to, all of these notions that are all about the the virtual version of ourselves that plays in our mind. But yet, because because of ignorance, because of the lack of clear perception of the the insecurity of these kinds of comparisons, the inherent quicksand of all notions about ourselves, we continue to use the comparing mind as a way of measuring whether we're okay. And you, it's, so on one hand, it looks as though someone who's less vulnerable makes me feel, or someone who is more vulnerable makes me feel less vulnerable. But in fact, I think when we see someone, creature or a person who is vulnerable, I think it reminds us of our own vulnerability. It's, it mirrors our own vulnerability. And to the degree that we are unable to understand that we are all universally sharing the same quicksand of somebodyness, rather than as, well, I forgot her name now, Jocelyn King puts it. She says, I don't understand why people prefer the quicksand of somethingness rather than the firm ground of emptiness. Please.
The quicksand is institutionalized. The quicksand is institutionalized. Just wrote a check. I'm telling the tape recorder. The, he just wrote a check to the IRS. Yeah, yeah, the institutions don't support things, uh, looking at things the way that I am. Well, from, the, from I can't get into the specifics of our, of our power structure and institutions and politics, et cetera, but I can say that there's nothing new under the sun. And from immemorial time, you could say, people have been using uh, influence and power as a way to, to cope with insecurity. And there have been perpetrators and there have been victims, but nobody is immune, whether whichever side of the equation you're on. And where, how this segues into what the other thing that I was talking about is, is that the Buddha didn't stop with there being inherent insecurity. He said what causes the continuation, what turns the basic insecurity into suffering, into mental suffering, into the cycle of suffering, is being in contention with this reality, fighting with things the way they are, struggling against the basic reality of existence. And, that, and we struggle in all of these neurotic ways, and it shows itself in larger institutions, it shows itself in our own mind in this, in, in this incessant, obsessive search for what's next, for security, for... Uh, for perfection, for enoughness, tying ourselves in knots, overlooking what the Buddha ultimately discovered was that, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, you, you in your innermost being, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, he says, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. So what does he mean by you who are the richest person on earth, been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come home, reclaim your heritage. He's reminding us that when we open to reality, open our hearts and minds, wake up, activate, recognize this wakefulness that bears witness to everything that goes with us through our highs, our lows, our insecurities, our inflation, our deflation, if we open to the one in us that knows, the knowing quality, the Buddha within, the awakeness within, and rest in this kind of wakefulness, that even in the midst of winter, as who, what's his name? Uh, in the midst of Camus? No. I forgot who it is. In the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. That we have within us. Who was that? <laughs> Did you say Ted Nugent? <laughs> That's very funny, Linda. 
What's that? No, I think it was um, Camus. I said Camus, yeah. We all may be wrong. But <laughs> it's a nice poem, though. Yes. But the Buddha basically saw that as long as he, as long as we are in contention with reality, we stay on a wheel of of searching, a wheel of struggle, a wheel of strain, of of tension, of anxiety, of stress. But when we come into harmony with things as they are, something in us relaxes. We wake up. And as the Buddha did sitting under the Bodhi tree, as his mind withdrew from its grasping and its aversion, it came out of the, the tangles of confusion and the light of attention became brighter and brighter so it reflected reality clearly. He saw that everything comes and goes. Everything arises and passes. And the more he saw the arising and passing things, the inherent insecurity of things, the more his mind relaxed and it opened. And it came from not straining against reality. It came from resting in the midst of it. it came from right this moment, resting. Rest. That's why Noshul Ken Rinpoche, the great Tibetan master, says rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, this endless ocean of the cycle of, of endless becoming. This is what, um, what Nagarjuna, that considered the founder of Mahayana Buddhism, said in his poem entitled, Someone. Blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and the world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience. I crave to have and to avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers, torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anxiety emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. So fortunately, the, the Buddha gave us not just the first truth, the truth of dukkha and the inherent insecurity and the cause of it being this contentiousness with life, but he talked about the third truth, that there's an end to it. 
and there is a cessation, there is a falling away of this, of this struggle. How many of you believe, how far do you think you have to travel to let go of the struggle? What's that? Nowhere. How long does it take? No time. Nowhere, no time. So there is a path, he said. And it sounds like this path is this long, arduous path of going through the going through the the noble eightfold path of training our hearts and minds to be wise, non-harming, engaged, caring, loving, generous, patient. But really, that path, that eight, that path to the end of anguish, to the end of suffering, is really fulfilled by resting every moment, by being aware of whatever is happening moment by moment, by trusting that awareness, by seeing what it really means to, to let go, to rest. What does that mean? What's it like? How long does it take to be aware? And what's it like in the moment of awareness? An awareness of your body sitting here, awareness of anxiety, awareness of hearing, awareness of smelling, awareness of grumpiness, awareness of impatience. What happens in that moment of awareness? So the end of, of dukkha, the end of suffering, the end of anguish is really a split second, a half breath away. And we don't need to think about the ultimate end of, the ultimate cessation of suffering. We have to verify it through what it's like to be aware moment by moment, to rest here. Why I use rest as synonymous with awareness? Because awareness has no goal other than to be right here. Awareness has no judgments. It has no, str- it has no strain. It has no tension. Awareness just knows. It has inherent in it a restful quality to know. It's so close, we just miss it. As, uh, as Hakuin Zen Master put it, if I can find his poem... Remember, we talked about Buddha is awake. Buddha is this knowing. He says, all beings by nature are Buddha. As ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there's no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water, crying out in thirst, like a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Lost on dark paths of ignorance, we wander through worlds from dark path to dark path. When shall we be freed from this endless cycle of birth and death? Oh, meditation. To this the highest praise. Those who meditate even once wipe away beginningless crimes. Where are all the dark paths then? The pure land itself is near. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart 
treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond mere doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place, the lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. Now clearly this rest, this freedom, this natural great peace will not for all beings solve the issue of bullying and all the various ways that we erroneously cope with insecurity, cope with, with the quicksand of someoneness. But it can allow us to sit in the middle of it all, to find peace, to not postpone a sense of well-being to the day when bullying ends and all suffering ends. But in the meantime, we can, we can rest. And we can also, as Hafiz puts it, we can learn to recognize through practicing the Dharma, through, through good company and wisdom, we can learn, as he says, to recognize the counterfeit coins that may offer, I wish I could remember the exact word, but may offer just a a few moments of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. We can learn to recognize the counterfeit coins. We can learn to celebrate our presence. We can learn to exploit this Buddha within. We can learn to uh, see what actually supports uh, resting, and what opposes it. We can slowly in our lives come out of the tangle of, of fear, of excessive busyness, of excess, excessive obs- obsession with, with tomorrow or what happened before and really live in silence, as Rumi puts it, and flow down and down and in an ever-widening circle of being and circle of affection. All that fulfilled by every moment. And the intention, the decision to do it, not to, not to just think, oh, okay, I'm just stuck with, yeah, we are stuck with insecurity, but in the midst of insecurity, we can find peace and freedom. It doesn't mean that our bodies are any less subject to decay and illness and that the people nearest and dearest, it doesn't mean that we won't have to let go. It doesn't mean that we won't have frustrated desire. It won't mean that we don't have wounded pride. But we, we rest where none of that can touch us. In equanimity, in serenity, able to meet the, as they say in the Zen tradition, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Be a mountain of balance and equanimity. And that's the potential of our practice. Every day we should be, we can be, uh, deepening our equanimity, deepening our the light of attention, deepening our love 
which flows from rest. I just had a week of rest, the the literal kind of rest, and uh, and I you know it's still even in a restful period it's still marked by dukkha. You know, still the things you don't get what you want or doesn't turn out. It's just that's the nature of life, and we just find our composure with all of it, and stop hoping for a perfect life. It's just. It's perfect in its imperfection. So that's all I have to say. Any comments or questions before we call it a night? Please. Eighty-six percent of children have been bullied. No, it doesn't. Yeah, bullies have been bullied. It's often bullies have been bullied, and you know it's just, it's just a lot of bullying. And it's a kind of silent. Uh, the parents don't see it so well. Yeah, the bullies are more likely to have been bullied themselves. Uh, yes and no. Yeah, it happened. There's all kinds of studies about that, but I, it was more just wanted to highlight that what, it, what would drive bullying? But it's so obvious that the, the bully is someone who is deeply insecure. The one who is bullied is deeply insecure. We're all insecure. We share that insecurity. And so I think ultimately our heart has to be open in compassion to the bullied and the bullier. Is that the bullier? Is that the right? The, the bully, sorry. The bullied and the bully. Bullier. That's terrible. Please, Carlos. Hard to be compassionate with the bully. We definitely need healing and support and love and... No, it's compassion. Compassion flows from wisdom and the intention to keep our heart open, not put people out of our heart. But that it's not something you can create. It's something that happens uh, when our when we see clearly when I when I'm able to see that the perpetrators of suffering are are driven by the desire for happiness. The same desire that drives me, I that there's a little crack where I can, in my own bourgeois way, I can feel compassion for, for perpetrators. Every, it's a tall task if one has been directly uh, victimized by any kind of abuse or bullying or transgressions. And, but in the, long, the direction of our practice is to have a heart as wide as the world that can include even the perpetrators. Again, that's just a, it's an ideal. Please. A contradiction. Yeah. Yes. 
No, no, no. Yes. Such a great description. So she, for those who couldn't hear, she talked about the discrepancy or the challenge between, between accepting life as it is and the need to strive and to better oneself and to, when we see that we're not in a, a job or a career or, and we're not progressing in a way that would be uh, helpful for us, uh, it doesn't mean that you just lay down and, and play, you know, play dead. As my te- one of my teachers, Menindra, put it, the idea is to be simple, not a simpleton. That, that, that it, it, it's really accepting, acceptance, resting, is resting in the fact that you're, that, that you have, that, that you're not satisfied with, with, that you'd like to refine your career. And opening to that and seeing where that takes you, that's, it doesn't mean stopping your life. It's in our nature to refine and to develop and to train and to learn. That's, a, that's one of the expressions of love is to learn and love truth and to, and to grow and to, to become. It's just in our nature. But it's like you say, if you get so caught up in how good things will be, you may, it may leave you in a state of suspended happiness instead of a well-being that can both that can pervade both the times when when everything's not quite okay and as well the the times when you're fulfilling your destiny and refining your your uh, mission in life that it's it, it's being yeah being aware of having your heart open just seeing it for what it is so there's a there's a way of seeing it for what it is, and there's a way of seeing it with with um, with grasping, with ill will, with uh, making up a whole story about what a terrible life you have and what a terrible person. Papancha, you know, the proliferation of the story, or just seeing it for what it is. And then, in the face of seeing things the way they are, we're able to then respond instead of just be caught in our reactivity. Again, it's easy to talk about. It's another to navigate, as you're describing, uh, to how to play that edge of, of accepting life as it's presenting itself and doing something about it when necessary. Mark, did you? Yeah, you can accept that life is perfect as it is, but it still needs some improvement. It doesn't what? It doesn't mean that it can't be improved. Exactly. You know, unfortunately, we're, we're at that time. So I just want to, um, before you get up, uh, remember that in, the, in our Buddha nature, in our, with our eyes wide open, we realize every day that we don't exist apart from each other. And so when we come here together, we don't come here just for ourselves, but we can actually... Uh, accentuate the benefits of our practice by dedicating them to the welfare and benefit of, of others. So if there's been any goodness, any value, any benefit, blessings, merit, anything that's been of been helpful about us being together, let's just share it with a deep wish that all beings can find happiness and the causes of happiness increasing every day. 
that all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, decreasing every day. A deep wish that all beings can recognize that, uh, that invincible summer, that Buddha nature, that, uh, that unshakable peace that pervades the joys and the sorrows, and at least that people can grow in serenity and equanimity, able to, to, to at least meet the difficulties and the joys of life without grasping an aversion. And just a final wish that our practice today and every day be dedicated to to all. May all beings be free. So please pacify your own bully. Don't bully yourself. Don't bully others. Settle back into the moment. Just a reminder, our room rental, Donna, you can make checks out to the church, cash. There's also teacher Donna. This is all offered freely so that you can practice the growth of generosity, which will also help your weary mind and heart. So anyway, thank you in advance for your generosity and also help with putting things back in their original place. So nice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.